This episode was recorded at Kofisi 9, located at the 9 West Building in Westlands, Nairobi. Kofisi 9 has a podcast space and TV studio for members and non-members. For details, email info at kofisi.africa. That's info at kofisi.africa. Hello, everybody. This is Jules, and welcome back to So This Is Love. When I started this podcast, it was intended to be a limited series, but the overwhelming support in the first season impelled me to continue this work. It has been a beautiful journey collecting and sharing these stories, and for that, I thank all of my guests and listeners for getting us to where we are. Do ensure to listen to the end of the episode to get details on how you can support this podcast. Remember, you can find us on Spotify or wherever you get your podcasts. So This Is Love is a space where people can relate to one another, learn from one another, and find a sense of belonging. Enjoy! Welcome to So This Is Love, a podcast about love, the loss of love, heartbreak, and the meeting of self. We share stories on how the relationships we once had teach us about who we are and define who we become. And maybe through these stories, we can answer that age-old question. Is it better to have loved and lost than never to have loved at all? So, this is love. Hello, everybody, and welcome back to another episode of So This Is Love. If it's your first time on this podcast, Karibu, welcome. Remember, you can also subscribe to this podcast. Leave a comment now on Spotify. This is where you can find this podcast. Today, I am joined by a very beautiful, gorgeous, and warm guest. Her name is Jill. (laughs) The reason I laugh is because the pseudonym she picked is... um, I don't know what to say. It'll it'll take you back in time. Um, Her name is Jill, not her real name. And she will be telling us about a very unique, maybe, I don't know if I call it unique, but definingly unique relationship with a man in her life called Jack. Also not his real name. I don't know if you get it yet. Jack and Jill. Um, And Jack is not a partner, which is usually... The vibe or which is really the setup on So This Is Love, Jack actually happens to be Jill's father. First of all, let me tell you guys something. Um, So This Is Love, this is season two, but in season one we did, we were focusing only on romantic relationships. And the reason I did that is because that was the inspiration for the podcast. But the more and more we got into the podcast, I started realizing how there's so many other defining relationships in our lives that contribute to who we are today. And I decided to extend this to all other kinds of relationships. So we're talking mother-daughter, father-daughter, father-son, sisters, cousins, former boss, colleagues, best friends. And, and how the breakdown of these relationships contribute to who we become, who we are, and how we see the world, essentially. Um, I think re- re- personal relationships are a huge indicator of, um, or rather, they, they, especially when it comes to parenting, right? I think parents and caregivers, they have a lot of power over children because children... I think they come in with a little bit of nature in them. I'm talking about the nature versus nurture debate. They come in with with their own kind of personality or whatever, but how we bring up our kids, what we expose them to, and the skills we give them 
really, 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 really contributes to who they become as an adult, especially in those formative years that they say zero to seven. Um, and so today's very first um, father-daughter relationship on So This Is Love is with Jack, uh, is with Jack and Jill, or but Jill is the narrator today. And I am very, very excited to have this because I've been dying <laughs> to have these kind of conversations of of parent and child because they are the in fact I think that's the most defining relationship for any human your caregiver it could be your mom could be your dad or whoever who adopted you or took that place or role so anyways Jill welcome to the podcast hi thank you for having me I'm very excited to share my story and I'm excited to hear your story as well so you're going to be talking to us about your relationship with your dad um, we are calling him Jack just for the for the sake of calling him Jack, we picked Jack and Jill because this is what Jill was feeling. I asked her, do you have any pseudonyms in mind or do you want us to create one here? And she said, you know what, funny story. I've been thinking about Jack and Jill so much. Jack and Jill. I'm like, you know, let's use Jack and Jill. If that's what the, that's what the universe is giving you, let's use Jack and Jill. But as we're talking, obviously, you don't have to refer to your dad as Jack. Mm -hmm. You can just say dad. And I think I'll get it and the audience will get it too. Okay. I'm excited to talk about it. Um, I'm a little bit nervous, but I think uh, it's nice to share the story. I know for me, it would have been lovely to hear something similar, just so I could find something to relate to. So yeah. I'm excited to possibly... You did mention to me that the, one of the reasons that you really wanted to talk about this is because um, your dad is your first love, mm -hmm. which I think is the case for all girls who have a father present in their lives. Mm -hmm. Dad is your first love. He's, your, he's the first man you're like, oh my God, my dad is so cool. And whether you like it or not, they end up being the blueprint mm -hmm. that you carry with you to your future romantic relationship. So what was missing or lacking or maybe overtly present in your formative years is what you tend to replicate uh, in your partners mm -hmm. or the partners that you choose as an adult. And you also mentioned as much as dad was your first love, he was also your first heartbreak. Mm -hmm which again, I think is a story for many, 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 many women out here. Mm -hmm. So I do appreciate you having the courage and even the willingness to come here and talk about this. I want you to take us back, back, back to the beginning. Of course, I'm not going to ask you how you met, <laughs> <laughs> as I always do on this podcast. Maybe you can start by telling us what are some of the earliest memories of dad? You know, what was your childhood like with him? And, um, you know, just take us to that frame of mind of young Jill. Yeah. Gosh, um, well, like I said, my dad really was my first love. I was a proper daddy's girl by any by any definition. So my memories of him, um, you know, he was my everything. I used to be so excited when he'd come home from work. I would be counting down, peeping out the window to see if the car was there. And the minute he'd get home, I'd run into his arms. He would tell me stories and he would do the voices. So even as I, every time I have that memory, I can hear the the voices of the characters and it's it's so fresh it's like it was yesterday I can hear it in my ear and he he also he was in the entertainment industry and he loves music and so he would play all these records for me and people like Nat King Cole and Etta James and I anyone who knows me I'm such a love of music and oh wow old school music is where <laughs> is where my heart really is I and love Etta James yeah yeah and I, my dad also introduced me to Etta James exactly and Al Green and Marvin Gaye exactly and that, that love for that kind of music is just dad I have so much love 
for that music because it's my dad. Yes, <laughs> yeah, exactly. So he used to play me his records, and we would sit in his room, and he's playing and telling me the stories, and we're dancing and we're singing along. So I grew such a love of music, and music is such an integral part of who I am. It's I use it as like a soundtrack for everything. When I can't express my emotions, that's what I go to, and that started with my dad, and that was how we really first connected. Because actually, I think that's my first memory with him is I can see myself on his bed at five years old, him playing, um, I think he was playing something like, it must have been like Louis Armstrong. And I remember sitting there listening to it with, and it was a vinyl, so I can remember the, the scratchy sound of a vinyl. And I, it's so vivid in my mind. That's the first memory that I have of him. So he was just, he, he could do no wrong. <laughs> I felt so safe with him. I felt so happy with him. I felt loved I felt seen I felt protected he was my safe space mm -hmm. um, so that's who he was he really was on a pedestal and he was my everything <laughs> he could do absolutely no wrong so that's that's how I saw him when I was younger when you meet him he's a very friendly person he's always smiling always laughing um, I remember in, he would come to school to pick me up and all my friends would love to have conversations with him because he just has such a warmth about him um, we used to, uh, my friends used to call him a cuddly bear because <laughs> he just felt like that. He felt like very welcoming. And he also was, he's the life of the party. So he'll walk into a room and he'll, he'll take over. He's just got this like very bubbly, uh, very energetic character. Um, and so I think there's a lot of me in, uh, there's a lot of him in me. I think I <laughs> picked up a lot of that from him. Um, yeah, he, and I think anybody that knows him would describe him as that you wouldn't see him as anything other than that. Just mm -hmm. friendly and loving and kind and welcoming and charismatic. Um, I guess also because he worked, he was in entertainment. So maybe there's an aspect of that, of knowing how to talk to people and relate to people. But I think that's how people would describe my dad in meeting him the first time. As I got older, things then started to take a shift. And I think the human mind is really interesting <laughs> because... A lot of the things that I'll, I'll, I'll mention honestly didn't really come to mind to me until much later on. It's like I had actively blocked or chose not to see these things. Um, and so it's only in reflection in the last few years that I would remember something and be like, okay, that might have been a little bit odd or this doesn't seem like it was normal. And I honestly, it was like a, I had completely blacked it out until one specific moment when it all just came rushing back. So when I think of um, times when it, maybe the image wasn't as perfect as I thought it was, you know, I can think of me waiting for him to come home, but then he'd come home and be really, really happy, <laughs> very, very happy. Um, and very, just smiling and I guess silly would be the, the way that I would, I think I would see it as a child. And, you know, in my mind, that didn't seem odd. It just seemed like, oh, he's had a good day. <laughs> he must be in a really good mood. Um, you know, he would come home in that state very often. And the little me wouldn't really see anything wrong with that. Um, and then the dynamics in the home slowly would start to change. You know, we would have, we are a family of very loud and charismatic people. We're very chatty, very playful with each other. And that was what like our dinners would be. We would be laughing and joking around. And then those dinners start to get quiet. And now you're hearing plates banging the table and I mean, banging the plates uh, and forks, just that's all you're hearing. That's all the sound, the metal hitting the plates and not much conversation. And 
that now I, I look back and I'm like, well, I guess that, that was also a little odd. Um, and things like he would then pick me up really late. The school pickups then got later and later. And it, it would be things like I, I'm literally the last, like the staff has left. <laughs> I'm just left with the security guard. Um, which now when I think back, I'm just like, that really wasn't, that wasn't okay. To be alone on a compound, nobody there. It did, And at the moment, I really didn't see anything. All of this that I'm mentioning, I didn't see, or maybe I chose not to see anything wrong with what was happening. Um, it just seemed, I, I think I would excuse it as, oh, he must have been busy or, um, you know, he all these things, just giving excuses. And it didn't seem, I don't even remember it really bothering me. Again, it goes back to the music. I would just put my music on and just sit and wait and be very patient and be very and not bothered and get in the car and we'd go home. Um, and as sort of time went on, so this would have been maybe in my tweens, so I, would, I would have probably been from eight to 13, these things started to happen. And again, it didn't still, to me, it didn't seem like much had changed um, in the family dynamic. It seemed maybe there were some things that were off, but I didn't really pay too much attention to the details of it. Um, and so now looking back, there's certain things like when he would come home happy and then now my mother would seem really irritated. And as a little girl, you're just seeing dad is really happy and mom just seems to be bothering him. Why can't she just let him be happy? And now I look back and I'm just like, oh, gosh, OK, now I can understand what where that was coming from. Um, and, you know, the dinner's getting quiet. It's because all my siblings, because I have two older siblings and my mom were also uncomfortable. Everybody was uncomfortable. And what was what was he happy about? So it. So now I can, my, my father, I can say that now my father is an alcoholic. I can say that now. Then I probably would have excused it for other things. Um, and it, it didn't make sense to me until I was maybe about, um, I want to say I, was, I must have been like 16. I must have been 16 years old because it really got from my, from my teens, it got to its worst. So from around 12, it really hit a climax. Mm. Um, and still, I, I just didn't want to see anything wrong. I, I really didn't want to let go of this image that I had of this person that made me feel happy and this person that made me feel safe. And I, I really did not want to lose that image of him. So I, 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 could see the, I would see the things and register them and then immediately block them out. And this is a habit that I, I've taken on to my adult life that I, I then needed to change but it just that's where it started I would see these things this person that I love that doesn't seem to be making the right decisions but not really try and acknowledge or understand it so when I was about 16 again now we'd been in this pattern of late pickups um, and I was at, by this point my older sister had gotten married moved out of the house I was in the home with my brother but in this window he had gone to study so now it was just me in the house with my mother and my father. So he would pick me up. Um, but the pickups were so late, it was decided, well, now, when you're really late, your sister will pick you up or her husband will pick you up, just so that you're not in that compound alone. So I remember... You, uh, you, so, oh, he, he would be late because maybe he's intoxicated? Yes, yeah. Right. So it, now these are only things that I then piece together after Later. this. Yeah. Mm. I, I, I would dismiss a lot of things that would make sense after that. So 
I remember I was picked up by my brother-in-law. We went to their house and it must have been about like 6.30. So by the time I was being picked up from school, it was 6.30. And this was like normal. I remember some of my friends were kind enough to try and wait with me, but it was too late for even them. So eventually they'd have to leave. So I was all by myself. So they would, my brother picked me up and we went to their home and I was waiting for him to come and around like 7.30, he comes and I walk down. And I remember that the windows in the car, all the windows were open. And I didn't really think much of it. I threw my bags in the back and I, you know, I sat in the front. And we drove to, there used to be an Uchumi on Ngomrut. So mm-hmm. we drove there because we weren't too far from my sister's. And he sort of then turns to me and with, you know, in this smiley, like very slurry voice, you know, do, do you want a chocolate? Do you want, do you want something? And I'm like, okay. Um, and honestly, like, I, I really don't know why it, no alarm bells were ringing at this point. So he gets out and he's, he's stumbling. Like he cannot walk straight. He's walking in a zigzag, a zigzag motion, uh, bumping into things and, then at that moment, I was like, oh, my God, <laughs> it like sort of just it clicks. And I don't think he had ever picked me up and been that bad mm. of a way, which is why maybe I had sort of brushed it off before. And it wasn't it didn't seem to be that bad before. But this was probably the worst that I had ever seen him. So he goes into the shop. And I remember I then now look in the back of the car and it's just empty bottles and then it's like, okay, so the windows were open to cover the smell. And this man is not, he's really, really, really out of it. And I remember I picked up my phone um, and I immediately started texting a friend of mine, one of my best friends at the time. Because because I'm the youngest and I have, there's a big gap between my siblings and I, and I have an anxiety disorder. <laughs> so a lot of things were hidden from me. Things that were not a very blatant that wouldn't happen in front of me were hidden um, because they felt they felt it was better to not put that sort of pressure on me or that stress. I mean, I was still witnessing it, but for them, this is how they thought they were protecting me. So I didn't feel like I could talk to anyone at home. I didn't feel like I could talk to my mother or my siblings. I felt like I was alone. And I had recently opened up to this friend, so she was the only person I could contact. So I picked up the phone and I start to text her um, and just tell her what's happening and now I look back and I wish I had I wish I had just decided to go back to my sisters I wish I had just made the choice to not continue on but I I think I just froze I so I just texted my friend and she was like just stay on the phone with me I was really nervous I was shaking I was so I was scared and so then he comes into the car and we're driving down Gong Road and he's swerving mm. like and i mean like very aggressively swerving there's cars honking at us there's near misses of people things of objects and i was i was terrified it was so even now thinking about it i can feel my body reacting in that way i was so scared it was the longest journey that i'd ever had home and i was scared the entire way and talking to my friend was the only thing that was keeping me i think from like fully falling apart and so we get home and I remember I immediately grabbed my bag and I bolted to my room and the minute I closed the door I hit the ground 
I just started to sob. It was like, it really felt like all the glass had shattered. So everything that I had chose not to see, that I had blocked out, it all sort of hit me all at once. These things just start to to make sense or rather now I, I, I think now I was accepting, okay, there's, he, this, this, he has a problem. Mm. Um, How old were you? I was about 16. So for most of my life, I had blocked it out. So that's about almost like eight years of trauma that now just hit me mm. in one go. Um, and I remember just, I, I, I fell to the floor crying. <laughs> then I picked myself up and all the while sobbing, just got out of my school clothes, changed into my pajamas, and I cried myself to sleep. And it, in one instance, this person that was now, he was my safe space, he had done, he had broken all those things that I felt that he was to me. I didn't feel safe with him. I didn't feel like he loved me because why would you put somebody you love in that position? I didn't feel like he saw me because it felt like nothing mattered to him more than the bottle or whatever he was doing before that. The safe space was gone. And all of this love that I had for him just completely vanished. And now I was... I was angry. I was so angry. And I'm not generally, I'm not a person that gets very angry. There are very few people that you can get me mad. And I think he's the only person that I've gotten to the point of enraged. Um, and it's because he meant so much to me. And I, 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 couldn't be, I couldn't believe and I also couldn't understand how this person that I, that I love and he matters so much to me. So I must matter as much to him. But yet he put me in a position that made me so terrified that I was scared that I didn't know if we would get home safely because it was just a terrifying journey home. And I, I, all, of the, all of these memories of, okay, this, this is why when the dinners went from happy to being quiet. This is why, um, you know, he would come home and mom was mad. And even like guilt, because I would think back to that and think how... I remember being really mad at my mom mm -hmm. and thinking, why, why are you picking on him? And then now feeling guilty because, but she was dealing with this and I didn't know this. And there I was villainizing her, but she hadn't done anything wrong in the circumstance, you know? And even now thinking about how we, uh, we would be so jolly at the table and then now he took that away from us and now... Now we were at a point where when he would come home, people would just rush to their rooms because nobody wanted to be there. And it just, it was like um, a flood. So I was so angry. Nothing I could say to him would be anything positive. So I made the decision to, to not say anything to him at all. So I, I didn't speak to this man for five years. We're in the same house. <laughs> and I did not, as, I think the most I would say was, you know, if I'm calling him, for dinner or something like that. But I just couldn't bring myself to talk to him because I knew that if I I knew that if I opened my mouth nothing nothing positive or nothing I would I would say things that I couldn't take back. And I'm really a believer in the words that you say they hold power and you whatever you say you can't take it back and even if I apologize to somebody once I've said what I've said you heard it and you've taken it in. And in as much as there was this version of me that was so angry at him, the little girl in me, the person that saw this 
he was, you know, this savior, this safe space. She didn't want to hurt him. Mm-hmm. So my resolution for that was to just not, not talk to him at all. So for five years in the same space, absolutely nothing. No words. I would address my mother if I needed anything. I, I just could not bring myself to even speak to him. Do you think he noticed that you had um, withdrawn from him? Yeah, I mean, I I absolutely think he noticed. It was something that he mentioned because, like I said, we were so close. Mm. We were really, really close, and he. It was something that he would mention to my siblings or my mother. You know, he's asking why, why aren't you talking to him? And I would just say I can't because if I speak to him, it's not, it's not going to do anything. It's just going to hurt him further, and. It's it's interesting that even though I was so angry at him, I still didn't want to. I I couldn't bring myself to hurt him. I I, I really didn't want to possibly lose the relationship forever, um, because I still was hoping that somehow there could be some sort of resolution, um, that somehow we could fix this, that he would get his act together, that something. I was I was holding on to hope, um, but you know as. The time went on. He didn't get any better. We, as a family, made efforts to try and get him to get help. We had um, interventions. Uh, I even remember having an intervention and all, all of his children are crying and expressing to him what he's done that's hurt him, that's hurt them. And, it, you know, I, it's the strangest thing because I, I was looking at him and there was no reaction. It's almost like you're talking to a blank, a blank, a blank wall. He would look and nod. He wouldn't. He would just, you know, he would apologize, but you could tell that it was just words. Um, and he, in the process of of all this, all the drinking as well, it led to some really bad decisions on his part that left us really financially hard out. So for those years from my teenage years onwards, we were really struggling financially because of people that he had trusted or people that had taken advantage of him in that state that had left us in really in a really, really bad state. You know, I remember having like absolutely no food <laughs> in the store. I remember one day there was nothing in the store but onions. And I remember my mother's stress trying to figure out what am I going to feed these children? And you know, we we made it through because we have a really good support system that were that would come through. But every time we would get to a point of okay, maybe this will help us, then he would do something that would completely set us back, mm. and then that would add another layer. So you're in this space where I'm I'm trying to resolve my feelings. I'm trying to figure out how I'm going to speak to you, but then every time I feel like we're inching closer to that, then you do something that sets us completely back, and then it's not a small thing. It's a massive thing. Now you've done something that's affected the entire family. Now you've done something that we can't, we're struggling because of these things that you've done. And just when we think we've at a, we're at a place of hope, then you do something really stupid again in the name of this thing, of this bottle that matters more to you than the people that are here in front of you. Um, so it also made it harder to even try and get to that point of, of wanting to talk to him. Um, and even for the rest of my family, they were in very similar spaces. My sister reached a point where she just needed to detach for a while. Um, and 
you know, also my brother, all of us sort of needed our space from this situation. Uh, but, you know, family relationships are difficult. <laughs> and it's not as black and white as I can completely cut you off. Because mm-hmm. even, you know, traditionally, culturally, you can't just leave your, your parent alone. So in as much as we wanted so much to be distanced from this situation, we could not walk away from this. We couldn't leave um, our father alone. I, I couldn't walk away from him. So we went into this space um, of, it was just, I don't, I don't even know what to describe it. I don't know how to describe what the energy was, but we just were like passing ships together. It didn't matter. As long as he was alive, he was breathing, I'm good. I don't need to see anything else. And then at some point, um, nearing the end of those five years, we had a, a death in the family. And it was somebody that was close to us, especially as children, and it really hit us hard. It was, it was unplanned, it was an accident, and it, it really shook us. Um, because I think up until that point, any losses that we had experienced would have been to old age or you know, things that they sort of take their natural course. So this was a, a shocking experience. And then uh, soon after that, my father then had a really serious medical um, emergency that he could have possibly died from. And so then it, I was sort of then hit with the, the questions of, okay, well, if, if he died, would I be happy with where we're at? Would I be okay with what our relationship is like? Would I be okay with the fact that I'm not talking to him, that I haven't said the things that I need to say? And so now that started to like uh, sort of gnaw at me, that now I could lose him. And even just in the sense of closure, I knew that if if I lost him and I had never gotten to have that conversation and maybe possibly have some sort of resolution, it, it would have been something that I would have regretted. So then I tried um, to slowly get back into conversation with him. <laughs> Started talking to him a little bit more, just trying to trying to get myself into that space to have that conversation. Was he working when he was um, during these years? So he was working on and off. Um, he would do a bit uh, some odd jobs here and there. Uh, and you know some of those decisions were in making sign giving away lots of money to people that were not thinking of his best interest at heart. Um, and so those were the situations that... Like bad investments. Yeah, like bad investments. So people that would see where he was and see th- how easy it was to manipulate the situation and then take advantage of it. Um, and, you know, he's also very... He's very... He can be very traditional. So I he also blocked my mother out of a lot of those decisions. Mm. So maybe if there would have been her input, maybe those things wouldn't have happened. But... Um, he would so he would do odd jobs. He didn't have a consistent a consistent job. He wasn't working in the same place because um, also those relationships had broken down because of what was going on in his life and the decisions that he was making. So the solid job that he had, he lost. And then now he was sort of just going off contracts. And sometimes they would pan out. Sometimes they wouldn't. Um, and he. And I also, I mean, I also think that that was adding an element of frustration for him. I'm sure as a man and the African context and the traditional man that he is, every time that he wouldn't be able to achieve what he wanted to achieve or make what he wanted to make, maybe that's what was also leading him to going to drink. Maybe that was a reason. Um, 
But, you know, I think the more frustrating thing is that I understand, or rather we, we understand, we're not a judgmental family. We understand that you can be going through situations and I just wish that rather than turning to something to drink that he would have turned to us or to talk to us um, and not try and bear the brunt of it or feel like it needed to be all on him. Mm. We, it was at, at this point we had a very distant and broken relationship with him, with my siblings. It was, it almost felt like it was us against him. Um, and uh, we then, we because of this, we had to move around a lot. And we had, like I said, we had a good support system. So we were, people were able to take us in. And then we got into, then we finally were able to set in, settle in one place. Um, and by this point, my brother had come back. And so I wasn't alone in the house anymore. Or, you know, I had another sibling. Um, and also in this window, I, I, you know, I mentioned before that people had protected me from a lot of a lot of things. And so now at this point, because there was there everything had really everything was sort of on the table. So there was a lot of things that I then found out about things that happened like even decades ago that I had no idea had been going on. And so it was also really interesting because. I'm receiving this information 10 years later, but I have to process it like I, I've, I've heard it then, mm. you know. So hearing things about how he, he may have treated, you know, my mother or hearing decisions or people that he would have gotten involved in and all this stuff that now I, I was trying to unpack. Um, and also I was still in the space of trying to get to a place of resolve and then the world sort of went into <laughs> the turmoil that it went into. And I, in that window, I went to stay somewhere else. And um, do you mean the pandemic? Yeah, the pandemic, mm -hmm, yes. Mm -hmm. So in that window, I went to stay with someone else and while, you know, uh, my, my parents stayed there and my, si my sister moved there as well because it just was easier to be in that space um, for them. And so I moved into another place while they were there. You, why did you leave? So your sister and brother moved back into the, to the parental home? So over that lockdown period, because there was so much uncertainty in the beginning, my sister moved back home just so she could be one with family and in a bigger space. Mm -hmm. And I, we couldn't all be in that space together. And to be honest, I also just needed some, some space. So I went and stayed with some family. Okay. Um, that was just easier for us to manage in that duration. And so in that duration, I then started to go to therapy and started to address these problems and started to try and figure out how to, how to approach this conversation because it's amazing how much of an impact this has on you. Mm. And it was a weight that I was constantly carrying. I was never really at ease. It, it, there wasn't a day that went by that I didn't think about it. It wasn't easy for me to shut it off. And it's like the moment that the glass sort of shattered. The, I, it was almost like I was an open wound. I couldn't block out any of the stuff anymore. And, you know, it's not like these decisions were getting any better. And like I said, he wasn't getting any help. Um, in his eyes, he doesn't really have a problem. Um, and we're the ones that have a problem with his drinking, but it's not the other way around. Um, and so now I started to try and figure out how I was going to approach this and how I was going to have this really difficult conversation with him. Um, and so eventually, 
I couldn't hold it in anymore. It had gotten to a point. It was really affecting me. It was affecting my mental health. So I just decided, you know what? I'm I'm going to I'm going to pray over it, and then I'm going to go and have this conversation. And whatever I say, I'm gonna hope that I have the grace to not say it too harshly. But right. I, but I need to say what I need to say. And so I I remember sitting in his room and you know just just completely opening up and being like, look, this is this is how I feel about you. With in all honesty, I I remember telling him I at this point in time I actually hate you. I I hate you. And it's such a frustrating feeling because I don't want to hate you, but I this is how I feel about you. I can't talk to you. I can't I, I, I can't, to be honest, I can't even stand to be in the same space with you because I think about the things that have happened or the things that you've done. I think about the choices that you've made, the fact that you choose this over us every time. Every time we're in a situation rather than turn to one of us or turn to your family, you turn to a bottle. And you don't seem to feel any empathy or any you don't seem remorseful about any of this. And he would just sort of like nod and smile and you know, yes, I'm sorry and again it was like a blank wall, but this conversation wasn't really about to be honest, I don't think it was about him. I I I was hoping for the ideal situation would be to walk in and he would apologize and we'd have this heartfelt moment. But this was more about me saying what I needed to say and you know, talking about all these ways in which he had let me down and how you know, he mattered so much to me, but he was now somebody that I I couldn't even stand. I that I didn't trust that had that I didn't feel safe with and I just needed him to know how, the ways that he had let me down and it actually ended with me telling him look I, I I forgive you I forgive you for these things that you've done I forgive you for even the fact that you're still not I, I you're still not getting better you still don't seem to see what you've done wrong but I I can't carry this anymore and you know I it was obviously an emotional conversation for me and i left it not really having the resolve from him but i had said what i needed to say and it it felt like my chest was immediately lighter mm-hmm. it felt like i could breathe it it quite literally lifted a weight off my shoulders um and so now i had done that and i thought when i had this conversation and i had this release i thought everything would be fine but of course it wasn't um because we were still very much in the same position we uh, were still dealing with the same financial problems still dealing with this um this addiction and the you know the hardest thing about an addiction is the addict doesn't think that there's anything wrong you know it's really hard it affects you so much and they continue to do this thing and they don't see the impact that it has on you and to be honest they don't care because they would rather feed the addiction than actually deal with the problems um and in this in that window as well i also started to feel a great deal of empathy for him and feel really bad for him because the more that i really sat to think about it the more that i had conversations with my mother and learned more and really sat to look at him i realized how much of a a, a broken person he is and he's very hurt and he comes from a generation of people that of men that don't feel like they can ask for help he comes from a generation of men that don't think 
that therapy has any merit and that they should have these conversations because there are things that you know he has shared or situations that he's mentioned that we're like you know that that wasn't okay and it's okay for you to admit that that's not okay but he just sort of dismisses it and you know i i really feel that he he's very good at putting on a show for people you know the entertainer in him makes it that it's, he's very good at putting on a show and he'll be the life of the party but he never wants to really be genuine he never wants you to see further than what he's portraying and it the alcohol makes it easier for him to put on that show mm-hmm. and uh that was a really interesting realization to come to because it made me realize that I, in as much as i can't i can't control how he chooses to live his life whether or not he wants to continue with the addiction but i can control my reaction to him i can choose to not let the incidences or um any of his behaviors impact me or make me feel a certain type of way because it was really something that i was taking on every time he would do something wrong it would i would have a physical reaction to it um but trying to understand that he's not he's only human and maybe i made the mistake also by putting him on a pedestal when i was so little and thinking that he was so perfect maybe that was the problem um because he's just a human being and he's a hurt person that just doesn't know how to get the help that he needs well i don't think th- i don't think that you were it was wrong of you to put him on a pedestal mm. jill because that's what children do yeah we 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 superhero our parents until one day we realize oh my gosh they're just human and the fact that you put him on a pedestal is testament to just how much you adored your father and i i can guarantee that he probably noticed the shift he's like oh she's joined the rest of them she's joined my wife and my other kids and now she sees me for who i am um and i also don't think that it's a choice to pick the addiction over his family i think it's just an addiction mm-hmm. he probably knows that he's addicted but because like you said his nature is very much don't show vulnerability look like you're in control what i say you just accept it and you don't put me in a position where i have to figure out what because he has a wound he has a pain that he has been feeding for years and 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 he's never had to talk about it you know and now his kids are putting him in positions where he needs to talk about it he just doesn't have the skill set to do so probably when you have that when you had that conversation with him he had a a, a moment and i think he knows he's addicted to alcohol mm. but he is just not ready to get the help that he needs and part of the i feel like it's a it's a i'm not addicted because i'm not the drunkard on the road maybe in his mind that is what an alcoholic is i know that because i've seen it also with other people that i know it's very hard for them to accept that they have addictions um and i remember seeing this person speak about um a session they had therapy a therapy session they had about a father uh, was it a father or an uncle somebody in their life that was uh, an alcoholic mm-hmm. and the advice they were given is 
Are you able um so look at this let's if it's father look at your father as the human um okay actually let me first ask are there moments of lucidity with your father or he, is he like drunk throughout the day no no or is, or is it just an evening thing he's just drunk from like let's say 5 p.m to 10 p.m yeah it's an evening thing and it's only like during the pandemic there was no drinking because he had no money to go and get the alcohol mm-hmm. so it's um i think what he what he would be classified as is a, is he's a He's an alcoholic that has binging sprees. So he he can maybe go for like a little bit without some alcohol and then he'll go all out and when he goes all out it's a lot. Oh, know? is that so? So it's not an everyday thing. Not and uh, so the thing is it hasn't been an everyday thing because he wasn't in a financial position to be able to um and but the minute that he then has money, he then does that. Mm-hmm. He'll go and and drink really silly regardless of what responsibilities he might need to take care of with okay. that money okay yeah oh, okay i see yeah yeah so there so there are moments of lucidity that yeah. you you've had with your father um yeah. so it's like separate that like you call the addiction like a villain mm-hmm. you see how you came up with jack and jill <laughs> is there any like story in your life that you would think of a villain <laughs> like I don't know Voldemort. <laughs> well, now all I can think of is Darth Vader. You mean Darth Vader? <laughs> yeah. yeah, yeah. So, like, yeah. So it's like the addiction is Darth Vader, mm-hmm. but Dad is still Dad. Mm-hmm. And the reason I asked about, do you see him during the week or times where he's lucid? This person who was giving this example was saying that their father just used to get drunk in the evenings, a functioning alcoholic, mm-hmm. um, getting drunk in the evening kind of thing. And I don't know if that helps, but it might help to kind of maybe get off some sort of healing and mm-hmm. completely separate the addiction from who your dad actually yeah. is because he's not the addiction and he's not the liquor he just has a, an addiction mm-hmm. yeah it's not a choice it's a brain thing now his mind is saying i need to have a drink yeah. i need to have a drink yeah if you're thirsty you need to have water you're going to go look for water even if you only have 10 bob you'd be like okay can i get water for 2 bob which is the cheapest water <laughs> i can find because yeah. i have to quench this thirst you know mm-hmm. what i mean mm-hmm. so addiction come gets to a point where it becomes your brain starts to imagine that it's a a need yeah, a yeah. Psycholo- is it psychological Absolutely. yeah yeah so maybe it might help to 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 think that way for your own peace yeah peace and, of mind and i think i mean i think that's what i've had to do is i had to i i think also it's it's interesting because you because this person has done these things that have hurt you it's very easy to then want to like sort of put them in this one bubble but like i mentioned the the little girl in me then could still remember the good things because i know he's not all bad i know that we've had some really wonderful moments it's not to say that you know there was no there aren't memories that i can think of or conversations that i've had with him that i i love um and so it was having to to learn to separate or to be okay with the fact that he's still that person he is still that gentle and soft and kind and funny person and it's he's very much that person and then now there's this other mm. aspect of him has he been drinking all your life I yeah I I think he has actually when when I've spoken to my mother she actually said that it started to get worse when I was around the time that I was born. Um it just progressively got worse from there. So I I've never known a time that he didn't have a drink in the afternoon. Um it just like it just got worse as I got older and maybe even not necessarily worse but maybe I noticed more and maybe I was able front and center to a lot more than when I was younger. But he I th- in my whole life there's never been a time that he didn't he didn't drink. 
that's just the way I've always known him. And it's a big, I mean, like I said, I think he relies on it a lot to put on this character. And it's a protection thing for him. He has to be this, he has to be the life of the party. And any time that he feels like you see a crack or anybody that then figures out this, this, this other side of him, he immediately cuts off because he doesn't want you to see the other person, mm-hmm. not just the character. He mm-hmm. wants you to see the character and only that. So that's the way I've always seen him. And I, and the more that, and actually when I sat to think about it, I realized, you know, I didn't actually spend that much time with him. So maybe I spent a lot more time with seeing the character, if that makes sense. Because he was, when I was younger, he had a more consistent job and he was a lot busier. So we didn't really see him as much. And so I would see him in short bursts. Um, and it was those times of coming home. And even all those memories that I mentioned, all of those things were like bedtime. <laughs> so he's come home, we've hugged, he's, he reads me the story. We even had like a rhyme we would say to each other to go to sleep. A lot of these memories were later on in the day or on sometimes on the weekend. Right. Not, so no. you think he might have been intoxicated at that time in his character? I think so. I think so. I mean, there's also... Other things that happened that were definitely clear indi- indicators that he was intoxicated, you know, there were some very heated nights with my siblings having reactions to him, but I was too young to understand what the reaction was. And now as an adult, I can piece it together and mm. be like, okay. So maybe the person I was spending time with wasn't, wasn't actually fully my dad. Maybe it was this character. And I think that's also been the trauma of, or what's been really difficult is trying to understand, okay, who is this person then? Because I want to know the real person. I want to have a relationship with the real person and I want to understand who he is. Um, and because he doesn't want to let me in, I think that's where the struggle has, has been of, I only know this person. I know the character and I know the person that then has caused pain, but I don't know that I know this person completely. Um, I don't know if that makes sense. Uh, and, you know, I, I, I've i had, you know, with my mother, she wasn't perfect, and we've had the healing of she did the self-work and I've had the conversations and she's open, but I don't have that with him. And when I try to coax, you know, have a conversation and probe, how do you feel about this? It's never really directly answered. So I, I don't actually know if I really know who he is or if the only person I've ever known is the alcoholic. Mm. I think that's where also the, the confusion for me lies at times and trying to make my peace with maybe I might, not, I might not get the opportunity to really meet the other person and having to make a sense of peace with that and still be grateful for the good, the good moments that I have had with him. Whether or not it was a character, it's still an aspect of him. Um, so that's what I've tried to do. So I'm assuming your dad is still alive? He is. He is still alive. Still in your life? Very much so, yes. Right. Um, still married to your mom? Um, yes. I, yeah. Okay. Yeah. Uh, so where, where, where is he now? Where is your relationship now? Where are you at with, with dad? Papa Jack. <laughs> That's what we'll call that character. <laughs> Papa Jack. Papa yeah, Jack. I like that. <laughs> um, well, he, I mean, I still, I, I'm, I think we're at a point where I, I'm not necessarily seeking a deeper relationship with him. I, I do, he is going to be a part of my life. I'm not going to cut him out. But I, 
I don't think I need I don't think I need anything anything deeper because for me every time I would try to get that and get let down it would hurt me more. So I'm at a point where I have set up boundaries and there are things that I will and will not do with him or spaces that I I just need to be separate from him. But I I still very I mean I still I'm still going to be part of his life. He I'm not he still needs a little bit of support. He's not in a position that he can um that we can really leave him alone. I can't we can't isolate him. So our relationship is it's just friendly. <laughs> it's cordial. It's respectful. Um I'm not a spiteful person, so I I don't feel the need to be mean or cruel or whatever. You know, I will still be there for him and give him the support that he needs, but I don't until I see any active change or any any steps towards that maybe then i would it would be a different conversation but because at the moment he's still in the same space he's still in the same space of of drinking even though he's at a point where it's it's quite literally detrimental to his health mm-hmm. <laughs> like now it's in it's in a very dangerous precarious space but you can't force somebody to stop it has to be something that they want to do by themselves yeah so i have to make peace with the fact that i might not realistically i might not get to have him for long but i i will continue to take care of him and respect him as my father but i don't need a deeper relationship mm. and i don't i don't need an explanation i think at this point i have done enough work on healing myself that i don't need i don't need him to to say sorry i don't need to hear it i have let go of what i needed to let go of and I am ready to move into the next chapter because I think it felt like I was trapped in this bubble for a very long time and it only feels like now I'm starting to step out of that. So that's sort of where we are in our relationship. I don't think it'll get it'll move anywhere past that unless I actually saw some active changes. What are, what does healing um this relationship from your end because you're the one who's doing the proactive work. Mm-hmm. Um what does it look like for you? I mean, it meant a lot of letting go of the animosity, letting go of the anger because it really served it didn't serve me at all. You know, there and also starting to empathize with him and starting to really understand him through the channels that I can because I can't necessarily have the conversation with him all the time. He's told me a little bit, but I can still get pieces of information from other people around him that help me to understand him better. And that allows me to to humanize him and it allows me to to be a little bit more um gracious towards him and understand and understand where he's coming from and try and and try and understand the reasoning behind it and 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 not be angry but be empathetic um you know i i i know the things that i have in place that he didn't necessarily have for himself he didn't have um a support system that necessarily loved on him and appreciated him the way he wanted to be appreciated. Mm-hmm. Um you, you know he never felt I guess he I don't think he ever felt safe enough to be completely himself with his family. And he I, I'm I imagine when I think about it in my position I can imagine how much then you'd want to prove yourself and how not achieving what you want to achieve could lead you to just wanting to numb the pain. He He's a big part of me. There's a lot of character traits that I see in him that I that I have. 
And so trying to get that resolution of not being angry that I have that, but trying to understand him from my perspective has been how that I've been healing that relationship. Because if I can't get it from him, then I have to try and put myself in his position or try and understand it from my perspective. So I, I'm not angry with him anymore. I, I'm empathetic for him. I, I feel a little bit bad for him and I hope for better for him. But for me, that's as far as the healing can get that, mm. um, this far. Has your father's addiction affected how you have related with other people, maybe in your personal life or just even in your friendships? And I think even I'm going to ask a little bit more into that question. How, how, has, it just, how has it affected you in general in life, um, his addiction, maybe an outlook, um, maybe choices of people you keep around you? Mm-hmm. How can you talk about that? I mean, it's had a, a, re- a really, like, the paternal hurt is, is it goes deep. Um, it's had a really big impact on on who I am. It it made me a lot more cautious, you know, especially with with men. I'm, a, I'm very, very cautious because I don't want to put myself in a position that they, that allows them to hurt me. Or at least thus far, that's been what it's been is I realized I kept men at arm's length because I didn't want to let them close enough to hurt me. Um, it made me a person that I, I am a very <laughs> controlling person for myself. Um, you know, I, I am not the type of person that you will ever see drunk. <laughs> I am very controlled. I'll have a drink or two and that's it because I, I never want to get to that, that state. Um, I guess maybe that's a little bit of fear of wondering if those things would carry on even in us um, as his children. So I, I think I'm a lot more cautious. I am a lot more on edge maybe. He's, it's, it's, I think it affected the way that I trust people as well. It made it very hard for me to trust um, to trust people. So my circle isn't big. I am, and when I am letting someone into my space, it takes me a little bit of time to get there, to really fully feel comfortable. But also in the same token, it means that I, I'm also very, very much myself. Because I think in watching him have to put up this front, I then sort of overcompensate and I'm just like, well, you're going to meet me as me and you're going to take me as I am and it'll either work or it won't work. But I don't want to put myself in that position where I feel like I have to put on a show, which I, I remember doing that when I was younger. I remember actually picking up that trait of when everything was going on and I felt like I couldn't talk to anyone, I really, I would put on a really good show, mm-hmm. a really good show. Like I very much like my dad would be the life of the party and would laugh and would joke but internally I was just struggling like I would go to a party and be laughing and then in my room I'm, I'm crying wow <laughs> and you know it, it was a it was a habit that I developed and that's something that I'm really trying to that in the last few years I've tried to let go of and I've seen what it does to you when you when you feel like you cannot be yourself or you don't feel like you're accepted. And, you know, I think for him, a lot of the struggle was because of the climate that he grew up in, being a creative wasn't a a good thing. And both of my parents are incredible creatives. And so for me, I've started to lean into that a lot more. I lean in more to my creativity. I think I've used him as sort of a a guide of these are the things that I will not do. Um, And I, I think... I think that's been very helpful. Um, and ma- that's also 
I think I also choose to look at that as what his contribution is to me. He's taught me a lot. What would you say, maybe one or two commitments mm -hmm. that you would list for yourself to your dad, like, you know, I will respect you, I will do this. I want us to kind of leave it on a positive note. And the reason mm -hmm. I'm doing this, I'm not trying to change your narrative. Your story is your story. Mm -hmm. um, but at the same time, dad is still here. Yes. This is not a relationship where you're like, I'm done, I've moved on, and, you know, I wish him all the best. Dad is still in your life. Yeah. And because of that, I'm asking, what could you say is one or two commitments you as Jill, that mm -hmm. you will commit to dad for as long as he's here and he's your dad? I think the commitments that I can make to him are that I will encourage him. Um, I, will, I will give him the support and encouragement in the things that he loves to do and that bring him joy, even when other people don't necessarily see it. That I will support him when he needs me. I will, I'll never turn my back on him. And I will... I will see him entirely for who he is and love him. Well, thank you so much, Jill, for coming on this podcast and sharing this very, very intimate and um, personal story. I think there's a lot of kids out here who are dealing with the same, same issue. We have alcoholism and drug abuse in our families, um, especially from the older generation. I think it's mostly alcoholism. I see mm -hmm. more, more alcoholism from the older generation and... I, th I think sometimes these people from the older generation don't realize how far down the family line some of these addictions or problems go on to because of refusing to accept that they do have a problem. And that even that refusal is, is, is a social construct. It's something that has been built in them that, no, I got this. Mm -hmm. I'm in control. So I do appreciate that. And, and, and thank you so much for your vulnerability. Thank you. Happy to have shared if you've enjoyed this episode, please subscribe to this podcast, leave a review and consider supporting us via our till number or PayPal. All the details are in the show notes of this episode and on our Instagram page bio at so this is love underscore podcast. Your contribution will help us keep going. If you would like to be a part of this podcast, you can also reach out to us via direct message on our Instagram page. So this is love is edited by me, your host. This is Jules. See you next time.